Thanks, Austin. Hi, how are you? Good. Uh, I'm Pastor Todd. I am one of the pastors here, which is good. It'd be weird if I was a pastor somewhere else and just randomly stood up. So, um, but that happens sometimes. Hey, would you guys pray with me? Just want to pray the Lord. Heavenly Father, uh, meet us here. I just keep praying that prayer this morning. Lord, uh, just in worship, you were here. Lord, now I just pray for your word. Lord, that there would be none of me up here and all of you. Lord, that's what matters most. So, uh, Lord, just guide us in your word this morning. In your son's name, amen. Amen. Hey, so I'm going to jump all over the place this morning. And um, I've got three things for you at the end, but I'm going to talk about three deals, all right? My deal, just dealing with some stuff, all right? So my deal first, I'll share some of that with you. Then we're going to talk about his deal. That's Habakkuk. That's where we've been the last couple of weeks, the, the, the sermon series that we're in. And then I'm going to share just what's our deal. What's our deal with all this that we're going through? So um, you can open up. First place we're going to be is Psalm 13. I'll get there eventually. Uh, so let me catch you up a little bit. We've been in the book of Habakkuk. Some of you found out for the very first time that that's a real book of the Bible, um, and they actually did put it in there. Um, everyone had to use the index to find it. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I kept passing that sucker the first week, so I had to go back and look myself. Um, but last week, uh, Pastor Eric shared what are, are really four steps Really to remember to kind of walk through when you see adversity, when you see problems, suffering, all these things that you encounter, and they are extremely practical and useful. So I just wanted to kind of restate them and just kind of walk you through just how I interacted with those last week. So the first thing he said, look, when you're going through these things is you need to stop and think. You got to stop and think. Then you got to restate the basic principles, man. What kind of things has God said in his word, the basic foundations of Christianity and our faith? Then we need to apply those principles, those promises to the problem, all right? Then the fourth thing, right, this is always kind of that hang up is commit the problem to God in faith. And I just, I wanted to repeat them because, look, these are four profoundly simple things. They are. It's a pretty simple list to grasp. But when you walk through that list, it can have a profound effect on what you're facing. So we were, we were left off last week in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, and it said, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith is what God is saying. So we're at this point where God is responding back to Habakkuk. Habakkuk had been complaining. Just to catch you up on history, Habakkuk lived in the time where the Babylonians, are called the Chaldeans, had taken over. They had taken over Israel, defeated them, and they were a horrific people. Horrific People, and we're going to hear about some of that later today as we get more into it. But God says, Look, these are these type of people. Yes, they are difficult, they are hard, and yes, I did bring them in to chastise Israel. But what I'm calling you to is that the righteous live by faith. It's Dr. R.C. Sproul that says this about 
faith-filled people, this kind of belief requires a complete entrusting of oneself into the Lord's hand alone. A commitment to walking by faith and not by sight. Such faith means looking beyond one's present circumstances in confident assurance that our holy creator will fulfill all of his promises. So I hear all this last week, and I'm like, man, four things, those are good. I'm good with number one. Honestly, for me, I stop and overthink. I'm, I'm good at overthinking, so that check that box. Um, and then, I, man, I love to be in the Word. I can restate some principles and some faithful things. And then usually I'm really good in my head at committing um, or, or, or kind of applying them to the problem. And you kind of get used to, as a pastor, you're always walking people through of, hey, take this. This is what God's word says. This is how you apply that into your life, right? And then, you know, you walk people through all the time, and you just got to commit the problem to God. You got to trust him in faith. And as I'm sitting and listening last week, I'm like, man, these are good. The first three, I really like. That fourth one sucks. Mm. And I heard that. I went home, right, and I'm, and I'm a pastor, right, so like, I got to set the example. I got to deal with this. So I went home, and, and I had lunch. Actually, I had lunch at my mom's. Man, and I totally dismissed what happened on Sunday morning. And so I wake up Monday morning, ready to move on with the week. Man, and the Lord just nails me to the wall with Psalm 13. I started off texting my wife at the beginning of the week, and it started off with, I'm not fond of this season of life I'm in. Just not fond of it. I'll be honest with you. It's not like I got this horrible life going on. It's not like even this season of life is really all that difficult. You could take my life and put it up to next to some of yours, and you're like, dude, you just, shh, shh, stop talking, bro. Your life ain't bad, man. And I, so I'm being completely honest with you. I get that. But I just couldn't get past it. I'm just not liking this season. And if I'm honest, I'm, I'm reading through and, just, and I'm telling her, I'm like, look, I, I just, I have to repent. I've got to turn, because I've got to be honest with you. I know I'm living life right now with this pessimism. You know, God says live by faith, and that's all well and good, but I got to be honest, I was all talk. I mean, I could, it was easy to say that. It's a whole other thing for me to live that out. I'm just kind of pouring this out to my wife going, it's a bunch of bunk, because honestly, live by faith for me has been live by pessimism and a low level of frustration with every human being that you come in contact with. Y'all laugh, but that's jacked up, right? <laughs> and I gotta be honest, man, it was like the, the, the tide in my heart was this swelling tide of anger. So I get into Psalm 13 Monday morning, right? And you can look at it with me. It's so I'm reading in verse one. Man, and this is all right. I just been reading through a psalm a day and, and reading some other parts. And so it was the 13th, man, and I'm reading on the 13th. 
And I start reading, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Yeah, yeah. How long will you hide your face from me? Man, my head's bobbing. I'm like, "Mm, preach, David. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? Yeah, I feel like I got to come up with a lot of my answers. This is the thought, in case you were wondering, I talk to myself. Okay, so I'm reading this and I'm talking to myself. You can think that's weird, but y'all weird too. Where was I? Three. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. I'm like, yes, that's how I feel. Man, I'm right where I need to be this morning. I was just, yeah. I kind of felt a little justified in the moment. Like, you know, maybe living by pessimism and frustration, that's kind of okay. David is. He upset. But that ain't the end of 13, daggone it. In verse 5 lands. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. What? That, that, but I, that is not me. My heart, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully, bountifully with me. Man, come on, God. You're going to drop it like that, man. So there it was. Dang, five and six got me. But that's where I was. And I had to realize something. That living, that living by faith, that meant that no matter what the circumstances are that are inlaid, whatever you're facing, Man, it was just, I need to keep coming. He has dealt bountifully with me. I do need to preach some of those promises into my life. I do need to recall what God is working because I am a finite being and I can't see that far into the future. And if I'm 100% honest with you, which I usually am to a fault, the truth is I can't see that far into my future. So who am I going to trust, my own self or God? And maybe it's just instead of always going to the negative, maybe instead of always looking at what's going wrong, realize what's going absolutely right. And the fact that God loves me gives me every right to why I should sing to him every morning. It is absolutely why number four had to be on there and why we have to commit to handing these things over to God. I was reminded of all the times that he has allowed me to feel his presence of this firm grip on the details of my life. And that even though my feelings wax and wane, his don't. And even though my grip and my weakness will falter, his never does. And his grip is always firmly placed around the details of my life. 
And it wasn't all better Monday morning when I got done reading. I'm still there. This is a continual process. And I'm not saying these things to you this morning so that you need to feel bad for me, but that we realize that this is always going to be a process. You're not going to arrive tomorrow. You're not going to arrive later this afternoon. It is always going to be a continual process, which is why this has always got to be a continual process in your life. Talking to him always has to be a continual process, even when life stinks. Even when the tides of your heart are swelling towards anger or frustration or pessimism, living by faith is a daily process. And so that's where Habakkuk was left left off with with that reminder. And so we pick up in verse 5. And so now we hear about what God's responding to Habakkuk. This is his deal. He's going to walk him through what's about to play out. So this is his deal. Let me flip there. So Habakkuk, we're in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 5. And so give me a, let me give you a little bit of context. So God in these verses, he just starts talking about, look, I know the Babylonians are evil. I know that they are filled with evil and sin in their heart. I know the way that they have treated you on all levels. I know that. And what he does is he's going to pronounce five woes, like whoa, whoa, like that kind of woe, big time woe, for their unrepentant sin. They don't get off here, all right? They're not getting off easy here. They still got to deal with God. They still have consequences for the actions in their life. So verse five says this, and I'm going to go all the way through through verse eight, and we'll stop there. It says, moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death. He is never, has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own people. So he's just kind of talking about, in general, look, I know this is who they are. So verse six Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtor suddenly arise and those who awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell on them. So here's the first woe that he delivers for him. He's telling them, look, woe to the extortioner. He knows that the Babylonians have been this tremendous extortioners. They've extorted the Israelites. Every nation that they have Come under, they've plundered, they've taken from them, they've robbed from them, they've stealed with them. Every person they've come in contact, they've been the extortioner. And here it is, God saying, and the exact same thing is going to happen to them. They will have to answer, they will have to answer for who they've been 
as an extortioner. And so this might seem, start to be redundant, right, of all these evils we're going to hear that, that God's doing. But what God's doing is, look, Habakkuk had lived this. He had experienced the suffering that was going on. He had experienced, he had been extorted himself. And so God is going, they will answer for everything. You're sitting here wondering if I'm a just God? You're sitting here wondering if I see what's going on? I see everything. And everything has an answer, but it's in due time. So that's what he's telling the first one. Then, then we see the second woe. Woe to the arrogant. Verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of them. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many people. You have fortified your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork. Look, they had gained all that they had by evil means. And they were arrogant. They did. They, they built this life for themselves. They separated themselves from all the other people. They lived this life of laugh, large luxury. And they were always separated. That's what it says. They had this nest up on high and they thought they would never fall. They would never be overtaken. They had this arrogance that they were the best. And so no one could come near them or hold a candle to them. And God's saying they're going to answer for that. That they had built their house honestly on death. And eventually that death would consume them. And it's this sobering reminder that if you're going to build a life on unrepentant sin. If you're going to build this life on unrepentant sin that that life is never going to stand in the end. And what you have to realize is, is that, look, God used the evil to chastise Israel. But don't get me wrong, the Babylonians had their opportunity to repent. It was unrepentant sin, a smiting of God going, there's no God. I don't have to see the consequences for the way that I live. I live how I want and they were answering for it. A third woe to those who build on bloodshed. So verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? So then he gives this reminder, verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. They built their cities and their towns on the backs of slaves, bloodied, literally bloodied the backs and killed people to build what they wanted. But verse 14 just is this firm reminder that it doesn't matter. Maybe we don't see it right now. Maybe we don't think it's ever coming, but God's glory will cover all things in the end. His glory will be supreme in the end, just like the waters cover the sea. So he's giving these reminders to Habakkuk. Then we see the fourth woe. Woe to the drunk and the violent. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. 
drink yourself and show your uncircumcision, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities, all who dwell in them. You know, so it's Matthew, um, Matthew 25 that Jesus mentioned. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. He's talking about the kindness that we treat our neighbors with, the polar opposite of what these Babylonians did. Instead of caring and providing for their neighbor, their goal was ill-gotten gain, to get them drunk and take advantage of them and expose them with deception. The final woe comes to the idol maker. What profit, verse 18, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath at all in it. The final woe is for their judgment, is for their idol worship. Not believing in the one true God. Their dependence was on self and their source was from an idol. It was lifeless, which is why, as a source, it only brings death in the end. In the end, God's response is more than sufficient in how he intends to deal with the evil that Habakkuk had been complaining about. And this was Habakkuk's deal. Basically, was God was saying, look, write it down, and then I need you to live it out. Write it down and live it out. That's all I'm asking you to do, man. Write this down and live it out. Sometimes we're called like Habakkuk to live out that faithfulness despite seeing the end result. It was chapter two, verse two, that he told him, look, write this down, that trusting the Lord to fulfill his promise was honestly more solid than the stone that Habakkuk was inscribing this with. That God was saying, you can trust me to deal with all things. I'm not gonna forget. And so, what was Habakkuk honestly called to do? It says in verse 20, but the Lord in his holy temple, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. For Habakkuk, his deal, stop complaining. Stop doubting. Look, God is not indifferent to sin. He's not insensitive to suffering. The Lord is neither inactive nor impervious to these things. He is in control. In his perfect time, God will accomplish his divine purpose. Habakkuk was to stand in humble silence with a hushed expense expectancy that God was going to intervene. That was his deal. So I, I got to be honest with you. I'm reading all this, you know, and, and looking at the sermon schedule, and I'm reading this, and I'm like, you know, these aren't real, like, fun verses. Like, you know, let me apply the woes that the Babylonians are going to see to my life. 
Actually, let's not do that. Don't want any of that junk coming in. We have some of, some of that shared responsibility, yeah, to write it down, to live it out, not to write it down, but to understand that we have to live it out. So what's, what's our deal? What's God calling us to do? If this is the example that's coming to the Babylonians for living a completely unrepentant, sinful, evil life, that's what's coming to them. What's coming to us? What's God calling us to do? I couldn't help but be drawn to what Jesus' response to this for us would be, which is in John 15. So turn there with me. John 15, I'm going to look just at the first five verses. And I'm going to encourage you this week, take some more time in this this week. There is so much in this chapter that I can't get to in the next few minutes, but your soul needs these words. Just like your soul needs, just like Habakkuk needs the promise that God is going to deal with everything. Let me just read the first five verses. It says, this is Jesus talking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me, I am the vine. You, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So three things that jump out from these couple of verses that's our deal that we need to walk away with this morning. The first thing, man, he says it a bunch. He says, I am the vine. The very beginning. And then he repeats it again. I am the vine. You're the branches. I'm the vine. You're the branches. And he, he's not suggesting that he's the vine. He's telling, and what he's saying is, I am your source. I am your source. You're not your source. You're the branches, bro. I am your source. Your competency is not your source. Your job is not your source. Your spouse is not your source. Your girlfriend your boyfriend, they ain't your source either. Your paycheck, your skills, your abilities, nothing besides me is your source. And it wasn't a suggestion. I don't, it doesn't say, I'm kind of the vine. You're kind of the branches. It, I should be your source. 
if you want. I don't want to push it on you, okay? All right? Just Jesus just died for you. No! He's like, I'm the vine. It's a a no-doubter. It is a no-doubter. What's he doing? He's, He's laying this out going, this is a design alert, okay? I tell this all the time, and I've said this to youth, right? This is Phil. We always like to look at this, and it's a bunch of rules. It's a bunch of laws. I don't like rules. I'm an American. Yeah, y'all laugh because you know it's true, right? Right? Somebody tells you, don't do that, and you're like, I won't do that. I'm going to do that. But this isn't a rule. It's a design. It's a design because this is the way we were designed to function in this world as Jesus, as the only source. And here's the problem. Here's the problem, and this is like the Christian crazy cycle, okay? And look, man, I get on this cycle too, right? We kind of get in and we go, yes, we read it, yes, he's the source, amen. And then I get on Monday and I'm like, yeah, but you know, I kind of like my wife. She's a good source. She makes me happy. She's funny. She looks freaking good. You know what I'm saying? No, y'all can't say that. I can say that. (laughs) She's kind of a good source, And so I dip a little bit into making her my source. And then my kids are cool. I like hanging out with them. I'm going to take a little, it could be a little bit of my source too. And then it comes crashing down. I'm like, man, why is it not working out? Because my wife shouldn't be my source. And then I come back, and I'm like, yes, Jesus is my source. Yes, Jesus, you're my source. And then I go over here and go, but you know what, though? Man, I like the work that I do. I get some satisfaction from that. That could be, a, that could be my source for a little bit, right? That's okay. I like coaching and stuff like that. that can, I can get some draw, some, man, man, people like me. That's good. I'm on the football field. That's nice. I get some satisfaction from that. And then that comes crashing down. Because it's not designed to be my source. And anything that you start scooping up and trying to feed yourself as your source for replenishment and for joy and for satisfaction, eventually where the crazy cycle leads is do you spewing it back out because we weren't meant to live that way. We start sucking up something else as our source and wonder why, well, I'm the branch and I can't figure out why my leaves are all withered. And my fruit smells funky. (laughs) And it's like a dumb moment. But the problem is, is we keep on this Christian crazy cycle because we want to pick up other sources. And Jesus said right there, I am divine. So your deal, what's your source? Get off the crazy train. And I say that just as much to you as I have to say it to myself. All week long, I've been looking for other things to be my source. No wonder I'm ticked off and angry at everybody. Because everybody else shouldn't be my source. Jesus alone was meant to be that. Shoot, he died for it. The second thing he says is, we're called to abide. Abide. Man, that's a, I love that word. And half the time you say, you're like, yeah, I should abide. What does abide actually, what does that really mean again? I know it's something good, right? 
because John used it. I should. I should abide in him. And abide means to remain, reside. And this connects to the first thing of the source because if you're not going to abide and remain there, bad things start to happen. You are getting outside of God's design. When you get outside of God's design, things go really bad. Really bad. We're called to reside. It was Crawford Loritz, he says, the longer you walk toward, toward God, the less volume God will use to call you. The longer you walk toward God, the less volume God will use to call you. It was James that says, look, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. This abiding is a nearness with God. It's a nearness with him. And then we walk away from him to these other sources and we wonder, I'm like, man, why is everything, why, why is God yelling at me? What's good? We walked way over here. And he's trying to get your attention going, you can't do that. That's not the way I made you. I made you to depend on me. You're supposed to be right here with me. And then the thing is, yes, God put some boundaries in our life. But do you know why we have boundaries to things? There's a reason why God said, you know, when you're married... You're supposed to leave and cleave. You're supposed to be with that one spouse. And that's a boundary. But the reason for the boundary is so that we can experience the fullness and the depth that he actually designed marriage to be. It's when you start going outside of the boundaries that you start to realize how bad and how awful it is. And then you're right back to going, I needed those boundaries in the first place. It's just like my little kids that understand, you know what? There's a reason why daddy says certain rules. Because you think that it's going to be fun and you didn't realize that I'm doing it for your safety so that, you know what? When your arm gets smashed underneath of the trunk that's closing because my dang kid can reach my keys and he pushes the trunk button, there's a reason why I said don't touch that. Because I know it's going to hurt you. And so sometimes we need to realize that, you know what, God is saying, you need to stay near me. Because if you start going away from me and outside of those bounds, you're going to hurt yourself. And I love you. And I don't want you hurt. And so if you don't think that God won't discipline you, to steer you back into closeness with him, you got another thing coming. And so God will absolutely discipline us to make sure that the fruit is growing healthy and being pruned. We need it. The third thing, the final thing, what he says. He says in the last verse, look, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. You can do nothing. That means nothing. 
That means not at all. Not a little bit. Nothing. Apart from Christ, we are helpless and hopeless. It doesn't matter the money, the intellect, the strength, whatever it is. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And honestly, as Christians, and, and I'm right in here with you, we, sh- we struggle. We struggle to realize this. Surely, I'm not that weak. Surely, I have a little bit to offer Christ. Surely, I have a little bit to do with being saved. Apart from me, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And the reason being, it's that weakness, it's that nothingness in us that his perfect glory and power remain full. It's in that nothingness that his presence is fully felt. It's that dependence upon him that we feel fully satisfied. And there isn't a person in here that doesn't want full satisfaction, that doesn't want complete joy. And this is why, and this is exactly why, and this takes us to communion. This is exactly why Jesus had to come. Because too often and too long, we want to pick up the crazy cycle and try to do it ourselves. And he's saying, you can't do it. You can't save yourself. You can't fix yourself. There's no books. There's no nothing. Remember, you are nothing and I am everything. And he was everything on that cross when they put him to death. And he was everything and more when he rose from the grave that we could be completely free of sin and that we could have him holy as our source, that we could abide. So that's my hope. My hope this morning is that, you know what, I know that this isn't all going to make perfect sense, just like me on Monday, but I hope that as your week goes on, that God would stir this into your heart and into your emotions because you realize he's designed you to be with him. So be with him. Be near him. Be in his word. Talk to him in prayer. He wants you to. He desires that for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive me, forgive us for our crazy cycle. Lord, of all the ways that we try to dip into other sources to fill us up, Father, I pray that your presence would be bold in our lives this week. Maybe for some of us, we've never experienced that. Lord, I pray that you would make it known. Father, that we would taste and see that you are good above all else, above all other things. So Lord, as we come to your table, Lord, would you speak to us? 
Lord, would we lay out the things that need, that need repentance, that need turning. Lord, that we would be near with you. It's in your son's precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.